Tonight we're going to be, uh, we're down to the second to the last um, message that we're going to be dealing with, with the book of Mark. And I'm going to talk to you tonight about Bible prophecy. And this is really, really strong. And I'm going to do something I don't usually do. I, I usually uh, have a verse uh, up on the screens and then we go on and I teach from some notes. But I put a whole lot more on the screen tonight, a lot more than what I usually do, because I want you to be able to take notes. And this is dealing with some very, very um, powerful, I would say, um, sensitive information in that it's prophecy. And prophecy is not always easy to teach. Sometime soon, I'm going to redo uh, the book of Revelation. We're going to go through the book of Revelation again. But right now, this is going to wet our whistle. And uh, so I want you to uh, be prepared to take some notes. If you came tonight without a Bible, you know what I say. You might as well walk in in your underwear. <laughs> Don't come without a Bible. Don't, I was watching uh, somebody. Where, oh, Charles Stanley. I was watching Charles Stanley. And he had all of his people hold up a Bible. And, of course, it was a Sunday morning and it was a full sanctuary. And they all had Bibles but these few people. And the camera panned in on them. And, and you think they didn't bring a Bible next time after being on international television in church in their underwear? I mean, it was bad. So bring a Bible. I want you to learn your Bible. I want you to understand your Bible. And we're going to be going through a lot of it tonight. So let's put it up there, Marsha, and journey with Jesus through Mark. And I'm going to talk about Jesus, the greatest prophet of all. Now, where we're diving in is Mark 13. And the whole chapter is uh, prophetic. It's Jesus dealing with two questions that we're going to be looking at in just a moment. But let me just give you a little bit of a feel of context. What do I always tell you about context? A text without a context is a pretext. So much of Bible uh, um, interpretation is very, very important that you observe context. It's understood in context, or you can really misapply it, misunderstand it, misteach it, and all kinds of problems come. So here's the context. It's Tuesday evening after the first Palm Sunday. It is, it is a few days before Jesus' crucifixion on Friday. It's Tuesday before Friday. And Jesus, the greatest prophet of all, has made sweeping predictions about the future of our world. And it's amazing. Now, very important when you study prophecy, especially Mark 13, and the parallel, if, if we're going to be dealing with uh, the synoptic gospels, okay, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, very important you understand Mark 13 and Matthew 24 are the same thing. Just Mark 13 focuses on some some. Uh, different issues, some of the same issues, but Mark and Matthew in chapter 24 are relaying uh, the same message. Remember that Mark was told by Simon Peter what he wrote down. And that's what gives the Gospel of Mark what we call apostolic authority. It has apostolic authority because Simon Peter, an apostle, one of the twelve, gave to um, mark what he wrote down. So when you're looking at Bible prophecy like Mark 13 or Matthew 24, it's important to understand that there is a blend of short-term and long-term prophecy. 
It's two-pronged. What Jesus talks about is not just things that are going to be happening to those listening to him, but things that are going to be happening to us way later, generations and ages later. So it's important to try to pick out which is which, which was short range and which was long range. Well, it's easy to find the short range because guess what? The short range happened. Okay? So let's look at some of the highlights of Mark 13, and I'm going to point out to you what was short range and some of the things that are long range. Now, the first thing that happens is Jesus is dealing with the destruction of the temple and everything that means. Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple. Now, uh, it says that as he went out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, do you see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? And Jesus answered and said to him, Now, this is like the Lord. He just turns right around and says something that blew their minds. Look what he says. You see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. That's like me telling you, tomorrow the Pentagon and the White House will be gone. Now the disciples seem like tourists amazed at the sights of the city of Jerusalem. In Mark 13, Jesus is walking out of the temple for the last time. And so here's the disciples. They, said they had good reason to be amazed at the temple. This is why they looked at him and said, Do you see this, Lord? Because the temple compound, as remodeled by Herod the Great, was one of the most magnificent structures of the ancient world. The Jewish people were justifiably proud of this great building. The temple was originally rebuilt by Zerubbabel. Everybody say Zerubbabel. I heard a guy on the radio one time. He couldn't get past it. Let me try again. And he said, oh, forget it. You know who I'm talking about. <laughs> Only on AM radio. Now, the temple was originally rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Ezra when they got released from Babylonian captivity. They began to rebuild the temple. But it was greatly expanded by Herod, Herod the Great. It was the center of Jewish life for almost a thousand years, so much so that it was customary to swear by the temple. Remember when Jesus said in Matthew 23, 16, don't swear by the temple. That's how revered this building was. And you were not to speak against the temple, or it was considered blasphemy. And you read about that in Acts 6, 13. You couldn't even say anything against it. Blasphemy. That's how sacred how holy, how revered a building was. Now, after Herod's work, the temple was huge. To give you an idea, it was nearly 500 yards long, 400 yards wide. Herod's rebuilding started in 19 B.C., 19 years before Jesus showed up, and was not completed until 63 A.D., taking more than 80 years. Now, that's a building program I don't ever want to be in. Okay? The temple compound was finished. Think about this. You work 80 years on it, and seven years after you're done, it's destroyed. Now, let me just show you the beauty of the temple. The beauty of the ancient temple is very well documented. The Jewish historian Josephus says it was 
covered on the outside with gold plates. Think about that. They were so brilliant that when the sun shone on them, it blinded observers. Can you imagine a building, the outside is covered in gold plates? What do you do with thieves if we can't even keep hold of copper? When we were finishing this sanctuary, we had to put all the copper way up there on the ceiling and store it up there, long copper pipes, to keep it way up there where nobody could get to it. Really something. But this, this structure, this temple was magnificent. Uh, where there wasn't gold, there were blocks of marble of such a pure white, pure white marble that strangers from a distance thought there was snow on the temple. Beautiful thing white and gold. The comment of the disciples, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here is understandable given the massive stones Herod used in building the temple. Today you can see one as a tourist, some of these massive stones, ones used that were used uh, to build merely the retaining wall for the temple compound. And how big were they? They're so big, some 50 feet wide, 25 feet high, 15 feet deep, that modern construction cranes could not lift them. How did they do it? It's one of the mysteries of history. Archaeologists are still not completely certain how these stones were cut, transported, and placed with such precision they didn't even need mortar. How'd they do it? It's a mystery of history. Amen? As great as the temple was, Jesus never hesitated to claim that he was greater than the temple. And that's why they wanted to pick up rocks and stone him, because he said he was greater than the temple. For man, Jews of that day, the temple had become an idol. An idol. It subtly began to mean more to the people than God himself meant. They began to worship this building. They began to revere this building more than God. The temple was a good thing, but let me tell you something about God. Good things can become the worst idols. Good things can become the worst idols. Just because it's good doesn't mean it needs to take the place of God. And you know what God will do with something that comes and becomes an idol in your life? He'll make it sour to you. He'll, he'll sour it to you. He'll sour even good things if we allow good things to become our idols. God is in the habit of destroying our idols. So that's why I tell you, keep a loose grip on the things of this earth Appreciate what God gives you and thank God for what he gives you, but don't worship what he gives you because he'll sour that thing. Because he alone is worthy to be praised. Amen? Now Jesus predicted that not one stone of this magnificent structure, these giant stones, don't you know when he said this, not one stone is going to be left on another? They said, Lord, we don't even know how they carry these stones and put them together. How in the world is anybody going to tear this thing down? Stones that large. But Jesus said, not one would be left standing. They'd all be thrown down. Jesus, the greatest prophet of all. Forty years after Jesus said this, there was a widespread Jewish revolution against the Romans in Palestine. And the rebels enjoyed many early successes, but ultimately Rome crushed the Jews. Jerusalem was leveled, including the temple, just like Jesus said. Now remember when Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you as a hen gathers her chicks, 
but you would not. Therefore, you're headed for certain destruction. You're going to see a crash. They did not receive Jesus, the Messiah. John records he came to his own, but his own, that is the Jew, did not receive him. Now, folks, it's a serious thing when God visits your life and you don't receive the visitation. Now, it was major, major when they did this with Jesus because he was the, the long-awaited Messiah. But look what happened to them when they turned the visitation of God away. See, when God visits you and me, we either receive it and we let him bless us and we bow to it and we thank him for it or we walk away from that visitation. And when we walk away from the visitation, all that can wait for you is negative. It's not good. And that's why America has to wake up. Because God has visited America over and over again. I'm not going to harp on this because we're going to look at what happened to Jerusalem. Here's Jerusalem, the holy city, where the holy temple was, where all the sacrifices were performed. And yet Jesus said, because you did not know or recognize the hour of your visitation, the temple is coming down. And he said, you're going to be scattered to the four corners of the world. Now the Jewish people, 40 years after Jesus had said this, a war took place between the Romans and the Jews. The Jews were decimated, totally wiped out, and the ones that managed to escape were scattered to the four corners of the earth, and they knew not a homeland again until 1948. 20 centuries of dispersion, 20 centuries gone, because they knew not the hour of their visitation. And Jesus said to them, this temple the glory of this city, everything you're putting your trust and your faith in that is of this world, it's all going to come down. It is said by some historians that at the fall of Jerusalem, the last surviving Jews of the city fled to the temple because it was the strongest, most secure building in the city. Roman soldiers surrounded it, and one drunken soldier started a fire that soon engulfed the whole building. The beautiful gold detail work in the roof melted down in the cracks between the stone walls of the temple and to retrieve the gold, the Roman commander ordered the temple be dismantled stone by stone. Jesus had long been gone, but the greatest prophet of all said it's all coming down. The destruction was so complete that today they have true difficulty learning exactly where the temple was. The Jewish historian Josephus writes about this tragedy, and he says, quote, Now as soon as the army had no more people to kill or plunder, Caesar gave orders that they should now demolish the entire city and temple. And this was the end which Jerusalem came to. And folks, it had been so different if they had received the time of their visitation. Is God knocking on the door of your heart in any way tonight? And those of you listening by radio, is God knocking on your heart? Has he visited you? Has he asked to have a place in your life? Before you tell him no, I'm going to tell you he stands at our, our lives at crossroads. When there's a fork in the road, he stands there. And he says, if you follow me, I'll bless you. If you walk away from me, there is only destruction. Think about the stunning 100% accuracy of Jesus' prediction. Seventy years after his crucifixion, it came to pass 
something impossible. These huge stones, this magnificent temple, all brought down, and not one stone left standing on another, just like he said. The literal fulfillment of this prophecy establishes the tone for the rest of the prophecies in the chapter. We ought to expect a literal fulfillment, amen? If this happened just like he said, exactly, where not one stone was left on another of this huge edifice, then what about the rest of what he said? Can you say that we're, we're pretty wise to say, well, he knew what he was doing when it came to prophecy. And whatever he said in the rest of the chapter, we need to take a hard look at it. Can you agree with me on that one, church? Now, Jesus' prediction brings two questions to the minds of his disciples. They heard him say this, and they said, really? And the first thing that they wanted to know, it says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, quote, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? Now, tell us, when will these things be? When, when is this going to happen, Lord? The first question on their minds was concerning the timing, the timing of the destruction of the temple. Jesus said it would be destroyed, and they wanted to know when. Mark does not record Jesus' answer to the first question, but if you want to find it, Luke does in Luke 21, 8 through 23. But I'm not teaching Luke, I'm teaching Mark. So let's move on. And let's see what the sign, when all these things will be fulfilled. What about the sign? What will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? The second question is answered in Mark. In the remainder of Mark 13, now I think the reason they wanted to know this is because as soon as he said the temple is going to be destroyed, their minds shot back to when the first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed. And they were taken off to Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And Jeremiah writes about it in the book of Lamentations. And he says, I saw them going by in chains. I wept tears like a crocodile. I cried and wept and my heart was broken as God's chosen people were carried off to a strange land wherein, uh, or whereof David wrote when he said, how can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? He was in Babylon. And they were taken off to captivity and the temple was destroyed. And they shot back to that and said, oh no, are you saying that something terrible is going to happen to the Jewish people again? Let's move on there, Marsha. Then Jesus then gives the flow of history until his return. Now he's going long range, and he's going to tell us what's coming in the future. In verses 5 through 8 of Mark 13, Jesus describes general world conditions during the period between his ascension and the time immediately preceding his second coming. So this matters to you and to me. Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed that nobody deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, that is Messiah, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled, for such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famine and troubles, these are what, everybody? Just the beginning. The beginning of sorrows. The Greek uh, suggests the beginning of birth pangs. These are just the beginning. Now let's just take it. Take heed that nobody deceives you. We all know that Jesus predicted in the last days 
And when were the last days, by the way? When did they begin? They began when he rose from the dead. Well, I thought we were in the last days. We're in the last of the last days. But the last days began when Jesus rose from the dead. He said, this is what it's going to look like from my resurrection to my return. These general signs are going to mark this world, and this world will never be free of these things that I'm about to tell you. Take heed that nobody deceives you. There's going to be a lot of people coming along saying, I'm the Messiah. You're going to be inundated with false messiahs who come in his name. They pretend to be Jesus or representatives of Jesus, but will not be true representatives of Jesus at all. The sheep's clothing they wear is saying, I'm from Jesus. That's the sheep's clothing. But inside, they are ravenous wolves looking to deceive and devour. And our age, the last of the last days, we've got more than our share of false messiahs. They're everywhere. The latest one, uh, he's a fellow, I can't remember his name. That's a good thing. I wouldn't want to say it on radio or to you. But uh, he's out there, and he just goes out to his group. I saw him uh, on TV just recently. Uh, one of the, uh, I think it was Dateline, went and did a show on him. And he goes right out in front of his people in, in hotel lobbies that he's rented, and he says, I'm Jesus. And they, <laughs> woo! He says, bring me your money. And they bring watches down, gold watches. They bring money. They bring jewelry. They bring all of it. He says, I've, I'm Jesus. I've got a word from God. Here's the latest word from God. Funny thing. They ran a check on his name. Jesus has been arrested in the past. <laughs> but that didn't bother his followers. Must have been a persecution arrested. But they believe him. And, and he's got thousands of followers. Jesus said they'll be everywhere. And then he said wars and rumors of wars. Jesus reminds us that before he returns, there will be many wars, threats of war on the earth, in troubled times. Many people assume the end of the age is near because it's a troubled time. But just because it's troubled times doesn't mean we've reached the end. Now follow me. These are only birth pangs. These are only general signs. Jesus said that wars and rumors of wars are not indicative of the end, but they are symptomatic of the human race between the resurrection and the return. You know, if you study history at all, the study of man is the study of war. It's just the study of war, never-ending war. You can go all the way back to the earliest civilizations. They warred. They're warring now. They warred in ancient Greece. They warred in Rome. They've warred the whole time we've been on this planet. And Jesus said, when you hear of wars, terrible wars, cataclysmic wars, world wars, that's symptomatic of the times, but it's not indicative of the end. There's one sign for certain that tells you the end is near, at the door. Now I'm going to cover that in just a minute. Such things must happen, but the end is not yet. Things like false messiahs, wars, famines, earthquakes have marked man's history uh, since the time of Jesus' ascension. In effect, Jesus is saying catastrophes are going to happen. But these do not signal the end. So let's move on. 
It's plain that Jesus intended his followers to endure through such times. Now I want to talk to you about enduring just for a second. He's saying don't let troubled times shake your faith. That's what he's saying. Don't let it shake your faith. Don't let it rattle you where your faith in God is questioned. Would a war, a famine, an earthquake, or some other catastrophe shake your faith? I'm going to tell you something, folks. I've heard newscasts recently of people that went through earthquakes or some catastrophe, and they're looking up and they're saying, I don't believe in God anymore. Where was God? Jesus said, don't let natural catastrophes shake your faith. He said, because they're going to be there. War. Our friend here going off to Iraq. Jesus knew that was coming. Don't let that war shake your faith. I love the verse where it says, the Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. You got to just know that though it looks like things are out of control, providence is always in control. So don't let these things shake your faith. Jesus said, because this is just the beginning of sorrows. He said these calamities were not uh, to be specific signs of the end, but they were the beginning of sorrows, which is literally the beginning of labor pains. The idea is both of giving birth to a new age, and that's coming, and that there would be an increase or intensity and frequency in these calamities. That's what birth pains. They start out like a few hours apart. They get closer and closer together. Jesus is saying these signs will happen with greater and greater frequency and intensity before the end of time as we know it. Jesus goes on to describe what his disciples must expect during the time between his ascension and his second coming. What did he say? Watch out for yourselves. Turn to your neighbor and say, you better watch out for yourself. Turn to the other side and say, take care of yourself spiritually. Do you know how many times Jesus told us to do that? I've talked to you over and over again about soul care. Jesus told us over and over again, you better watch out for yourself. Your mama can't watch out for your soul. I, I can talk to you a few times a week, but I can't be there to take care of your soul every day. Jesus said, watch out for yourself, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogues. You'll be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. <laughs> Can you all just use your imagination a minute? All they said was, Lord, when will these things be? And man, he is leveling them. Would you listen to this? I mean, he's giving them a panoramic view of history till the end of time. Jesus was heavy stuff. Amen? But when they arrest you, he said, and deliver you up, don't worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you that hour, you know what that means? That means you're going to be in situations where you can't think about it ahead of time, plan about it ahead of time, write your notes down ahead of time. You're going to be pulled in front of people and they're going to say, testify. And you're going to have to be instant in season and testify of Jesus Christ. And these disciples all experienced it, every one of them. He said, whatever the Holy Ghost gives you, speak that, for it is not you who speak, but it's the Holy Spirit. 
Now brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. And children are going to rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you're going to be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. So there comes a time he just says, you're going to have to endure. Watch out for yourselves. They're going to deliver you up to councils. Jesus tells the disciples to be prepared for the persecution that will come against them before the end comes. This persecution, again, is not the sign of the end. But it simply should be expected. But it's not the sign. He said the gospel is going to first be preached to all the nations. But he also promises that before the end, the gospel is going to go out to the entire world. You know, I've got a dream. I want our little church here to have a part in taking the gospel to the whole world. I mean, I'm praying about it. I'm dreaming about it. I'm thinking about it. I'm studying it. I want to play a part in it. When I see just the power of what radio does, just radio in a Metroplex, it just blows my mind. And, and with technology coming along like it is, we might very well have a service someday that is transmitted around the world over and over again. That, as a matter of fact, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Jesus said it would, so I know it's going to. And he says, the presence of persecution does not relieve the church of this responsibility. When they arrest you and deliver you up, Jesus said, don't even think about it beforehand. When you're put on the spot, you're going to know what to say as a follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit is going to give you the words to say. A great example of this is found in Acts 4, where Peter and the other disciples make a dramatic proclamation of Jesus before the hostile Sanhedrin. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. When it's for your life or your liberty, you've got to have the Holy Spirit upon you. And don't think it can't happen in America. Persecution, it's already happening. It's already happening. Brother is going to betray brother. The followers of Jesus should expect the most painful kinds of rejection and betrayal. As they say, I know if I had police walk in this Sunday and put a gun up to me or handcuffs and said, if you preach what you're going to preach, we're taking you away. And anybody in here who sits and amens you, I wonder who would amen me. Seriously, the day's coming. I won't be able to stand up and say, homosexuality is a sin or any one of, of a number of things that the Bible clearly says. I won't be able to say it, but what I'm committing a hate crime in their eyes. I think it'll separate the men from the boys in those days. And I think a lot of preachers will bail. They've already bailed. They don't even preach the word anymore. It's tragic. They don't even tell you you need to be saved anymore. Don't preach the word sin anymore. They've gone weak and wimpy and spineless because of PC, political correctness. They won't even take a stand for the word anymore. Not me. I got called to preach the word 
Not three points in a poem in my own thoughts. That's right. It's easy for us to underestimate how difficult a time of persecution can be. Inside this building, I can easily say, Jesus Christ is Lord. But if I came from an Orthodox Jewish family, they might consider me a blasphemer and account me as dead for choosing Jesus. If I came from a strict Muslim family, I might be rejected by my family and literally killed for choosing Jesus. If I came from a Hindu family in India, I could be rejected and martyred for choosing Jesus. In China, I'd be allowed to practice Christianity, oh yeah, in the state-sponsored church or be persecuted. My church might be one of the over 1,500 churches destroyed or shut down since November of 2000. In the Sudan, I might be killed or literally enslaved by a Muslim army for preaching Jesus. In Indonesia, I might be given a choice by Muslims, convert to Islam or die, or I might have my church bombed during a worship service. In Pakistan, I could be jailed by Muslim government officials. According to David B. Barrett, and I'm going to close with these stats and we'll finish this on prophecy next week. But let me look at, get you to look at this now on what Jesus said was coming to those who stood for the word. I want you to get this. According to David B. Barrett in his book, Today's Martyrs, some 165,000 Christians died for their faith in the year 2000. I'm going to say that again. 165,000 Christians died in the year 2000. Researchers estimate that since the day of Pentecost, more than 33 or 43 million Christians have been killed for their faith. 43 million. A persecution index provided by Open Doors with Brother Andrew lists 28 countries with strong or even massive persecution. In another 23 countries, Christians suffer discrimination and in some regions, severe harassment. And I'm going to stick America in that last 23 countries. Jesus said, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Endures translates the ancient Greek word hupomeno, hupomeno which literally means to remain under. When trials and persecution are swirling around us, we can't be so desperate for an escape that we will compromise. Indeed, we must remain under and stay true. Now, I want you all to get this. When the heat is on, real believers remain under that fire and they stay true. They don't run, they remain under the load. They take it, they endure. Let's stop there. Can we stand together? And I'll finish it next week because I'm going to tell you about the big sign next week. The sign that he is at the door. I want you to say with me, there is one sign. When you see it, lift up your head. He's a coming. One sign. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. 
And we pray the blessing of God on it and the hand of God on it. We pray that you will minister, Lord. Help us to remain true, to remain under the load, to remain under the heat, full of your fire, full of your zeal, and to never, ever try to escape the price we might pay for being your child. Now I want you to pray for boldness tonight as we get ready to close. I want you to pray that God gives you Holy Ghost boldness. Our church is going to be a bold church. It is a bold church. And the boldness is growing. And I want you to pray that God gives you supernatural boldness out there. Father, we just thank you that the Holy Spirit is not a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. And when we see, Lord, the hundreds of thousands that remain under, even to the death, then, Lord, we know that we are in a world of persecution. And yet, Lord, you want to send a revival that for those who will take a stand, the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. And we want to be a part of that, Father. Now, if that's your heart, can you just lift your hands to him and say, Lord, I want to see your glory. I want to see a move of God. And so I'm not going to compromise the cross or the word or Jesus or my convictions because of the heat. But I'm going to remain under and see the, the Lord move in my generation. In the name of Jesus, thank you, Lord. Thank you.